Please open the scriptures and turn with me to Romans chapter 2. As you're turning there, this is uh, also a delightful weekend for our youth and for their chaperones. Some 60 plus of our youth and their chaperones are enjoying their uh, weekend together. We'll be returning around 1030 this morning. So as you remember, please pray for their safe return and for the Lord of the word of the Lord to bear rich fruit within them. Romans chapter 2, we are in a series on Paul's magnificent letter to Romans. Our verses for study this morning are 17 through 29, but I'm going to begin reading in verse 12 for the sake of context again. Let's read there, Romans 2 and verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the works of the law, that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed in the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, Do you dishonor God by breaking the law? For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision, indeed, is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Let's pray together. Father, we would ask as we approach your word and as we unfold the the logic of the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul, that you'd be pleased to dwell among us and that you would grant us not only to understand with our minds, but 
in the very thing of which Paul has spoken and to which the Spirit is driving, that the matters of the heart for each one of us would be dealt with this morning. We plead with you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Last Sunday morning in Christian Brewer's excellent sermon on verses 12 through 16 of chapter 2, we heard of the Apostle Paul's deep critique of the whole of the human race, all of the Jews and all of the nations. We saw first that God has a perfect standard and that no one meets God's perfect standard. We saw second that all people know the essence of God's law, either by special revelation to the Jews or by that which is written upon their hearts in the image of God, both to the Jews and to the Gentiles, to all the nations. Everyone knows the essence of right and wrong and are held accountable to God for it. And we saw finally that everyone's conscience bears witness to them of their own guilt and will one day bear testimony against them before the bar of God's holy justice. That's why we so desperately need the gospel. Now in our text this morning, Paul anticipates the great surprise and objections of his Jewish readers who have just read and or in the first reading of verses 12 through 16. Their thinking would have been something like this. Surely, Paul, you're not lumping us together as being in the same condition as these Gentile outsiders, are you? Have you forgotten all the wondrous privileges that God has given to us and to no one else? Paul, are you, you are deeply offensive to us when you say that we are no better off before God than others are. The Jews are making the same objection that seemingly everyone in culture today makes. You have offended me. Whether the offense is legitimate or not. And so in verses 17 and following, Paul's reply is a frontal assault that bursts the bubble of Jewish pride and presumption. Paul is arguing that the Jews have actually aggravated their condemnation before God by their misuse of these extraordinary privileges that God had given to them. So this morning, I want us to be struck by how deeply Paul's critique of the Jews in his day, now listen very carefully, parallels the Lord's critique of the church today. How much the critique of the Jews in Paul's day parallels the Lord's critique of the church today. There are three themes that I want us to drive home from the text this morning, and here's the first. That we must see the great privileges that God has given to the Hebrew people of old, and by parallel, our privileges as the church the privileges of the people of old and our privileges as the people of God today. Read with me again verses 17 through 20. Paul says, But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed in the law 
And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of the truth. Paul has just summarized these beautiful privileges that God gave to the Jews. Now the, the objection that Paul is heading off at the pass is the Hebrew saying aloud, hey, wait a minute, Paul. I'm a Jew. I'm special. I possess the gifts and the blessings of God. Well, Paul is saying, yes, that's exactly the point. Your privileges have aggravated your guilt before the face of God. You do not make right use of your privileges. Your privileges came with responsibility and accountability, and you have been found wanting. Now, I want you to notice that in verses 17 through 20, that Paul enumerates these privileges with eight verbs. Eight verbal phrases tell us what it is that Paul outlines as their privileges. Now, I want you to remember that Paul knew this from the inside before he was converted. What was Paul doing before he was converted? He was, as a Pharisee, traveling around persecuting the church on the basis of his prideful use of these privileges which had been given to the Jews. Well, let's enumerate them very quickly. You call yourself a Jew, beginning in verse 17. Well, their pride was in their chosen name as God's people. In other words, in this phrase, they're essentially saying, and Paul is granting, that you descend from Abraham. You have this remarkable descent from the father of the faithful. Second, he says, you rely on the law. You're trusting in your unique status as those to whom God revealed his holy commands. Third, you boast in God. The Jews boasted that the God whom they worshipped was the God of the nation of Israel and not the God of the other nations. Fourth, that they knew his will. They boasted that God's purposes were revealed to them and not to others in other words, that they had the prophets and no one else did. Fifth, they approved what was excellent and superior. Their judgment was uniquely superior to the rest of the nations. Sixth, they were instructed in the law that they had the oracles of God and that their rabbis and their scribes instructed them in the commands of God. And seventh, that they were guides to the blind and to those who were in darkness because they had instruction in the law. They were reliable guides to the Gentiles, that is, to proselytes who would come in to Judaism. And then in the eighth and final sense, they were instructors of the foolish and teachers of children. They were educators of the spiritually immature and of the new converts. So in those eight phrases, Paul lays out before us the Jew's view of himself and of the privileges that he enjoyed before God. Now, brothers and sisters, I want us to immediately apply this to ourselves in our day, in our churches, and here at Pear Orchard. We might, in the language of Paul in verse 17, say, 
But if you call yourself a Christian, are we not a people who have even more abundantly been privileged than were the Jews of old? Are we not held accountable for the enormity both of the law and the gospel in their beautiful adherence to the holiness of God? Are we not held accountable for the spiritual privileges in the church that parallel in a very real sense what Paul has just outlined for the Jews? Let me walk us through that. We call ourselves Christians, which the book of Acts tells us means little Christs. We don't bear the name of Abraham. We bear the name of the eternal Son of God. What a remarkable privilege. We rely not only on the law of God, but we have the fullness of the gospel as our inheritance. And whereas the law can only condemn and instruct, the fullness of the gospel brings life and joy and peace and eternal mercy. Think of the extraordinary privilege that is ours, that we have the fullness of revelation. And we boast in God too, do we not? But more so in the fact that the full picture of God's glory has been revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. What a remarkable privilege that we have. That God has finally, in a Hebrews 1 sense, revealed his glory, his holiness, his majesty in the eternal coming and face of Jesus Christ, his son. We too know his will in great fullness, which is, as Paul tells us, that we are to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. We are instructed in the law and the gospel and their perfect harmony. We're privileged to have the complete record of God's revelation, Old and New Testament, and to be reminded that God has said to the church everything that he needs to say in terms of revelation, until Jesus Christ returns. There is no more need for any revelation whatsoever until Jesus appears in the heavens. And we too have been made guides to the blind and to those who are in darkness. We are called as a church to do what? To go to the nations and make disciples of those who have never heard of the gospel. And finally, we are teachers of the foolish and of children. The church is to train the immature and the weak and the next generations. And so, brothers and sisters, we have been given privileges and responsibilities that far outshine anything that the Hebrews ever knew. And we have the full embodiment of knowledge, and the full embodiment of truth, as verse 20 says, in the incarnation, the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ. How inestimable are our privileges. How great are our responsibilities. And yet I must tell you, in the language of the Apostle Paul, applying as he has done to the Jews here, Yet how arrogant and unmoved we have become by our privileges, just as the Hebrews were. 
Now this leads us to Paul's second theme flowing immediately out of the first. We are to be deeply humbled by our own arrogance, our own indifference, our own hypocrisy with which we live in the light of all of these privileges. We're to be humbled by our arrogance, our hypocrisy, our indifference, by the way we live in light of these privileges. Look at verse 21 through 24. Paul asks a series of rhetorical questions to get at this. Read verse 21 with me. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Paul is now going to go into the law, as it were, and to extract truths from the law, which the Jews boasted in. And he is going to say, you have boasted in this law. Do you keep it? Do you live it? Or is there hypocrisy within you? It is to be judged by the Lord. Paul is pressing home the point that the privileges which the Jews enjoyed only aggravated their guilt because of their unbelief and their disobedience. Paul now turns the screws to the Jews and by implication to us in the church. We who claim the name of Christian. It's a powerful critique Paul is essentially saying, you Jews, you do not practice what you preach. If Paul were here today, he would say, Christian, you who call yourself by the name of Christ, do you practice what you preach? Do you live what you profess to know? The privileges which you take so much pride in you often disdain by the very way that you live and think. So following Paul's eight verbal phrases, Paul asks five rhetorical questions, and here they are. You who propose to teach others, have you taught yourself? Paul is asking the rhetorical question, do you yourself, who call yourself a teacher of others, do you yet remain ignorant, truly, of what God has said? You who condemn theft, do you steal? Do you steal with your time? Do you steal with your taxes? Do you steal with your greed? Do you try to get away with whatever you can get away with? You who condemn sexual sin, do you yourself commit sexual sin, whether physically or in your heart, the lust of your heart, in the language of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5? You who abhor idolatry, do you bow down to idols? Paul's phrase here, do you rob temples, is a mysterious phrase. And we readily admit that no one truly understands exactly what Paul meant there. A number of range of options. But it clearly means this. You who abhor idolatry, is your heart an idol factory? You who boast in the law, 
do you dishonor God by violating it? You see, Paul is unmasking the hypocrisy of the Jews and shows them guilty of condemnation by their own standards. And what I want us to see this morning as the church is that isn't it the same for us? That we who make boast in all of the wonders of the gospel, is it not true that we have disdained so many of the privileges which God has given to us? And so what of you and of me do we carry about us the name of Christian with all of these extraordinary divine privileges? And yet are we not in danger of the same condition of the Jews? That we're guilty of an arrogant and a blind moral hypocrisy of not living up to the standards of both the law of God and the gospel of God and them wed perfectly in our Lord Jesus Christ. Do not the multitude of our privileges when we examine our hearts, overwhelm us with an admission of our own immaturity, of our own indifference to the Lord, of our own pride as we look at the world, of our own self-protection against, against sacrifice, of our own idolatrous loves, of our own inordinate desires, of our failure to bear the cross to our own death. I hope that you and I cannot read this passage without seeing ourselves as those to whom the Scripture speaks so boldly as it did in Paul's day. So have you confidently asserted the privilege of being a Christian while devaluing these privileges by the way that you live and the way that you think? You boast in the truths of the gospel on the one hand, but refuse to have the Holy Spirit drive those truths into the day-to-day -day affairs of your life. <coughs> Is it not true that we who call ourselves Christians sometimes live in the language of verse 24, look at it, that the name of our God is cursed by the world because of us? So what are we to do? How are we possibly going to heal ourselves? For the law of God is a terrifying witness against our disobedience and our conscience seconds the motion that we are guilty across the board. Well, thanks be to God that the Holy Spirit does not leave us there, nor does the Apostle Paul. We come to verses 28 and 29. Our third and final theme from the text is that our hope is bound up in the spirit-wrought internal transformation that is truly life. Our hope is bound up not in the law that can condemn and instruct, it is not bound up in outward forms like circumcision and baptism. <clears throat> it is bound up in the spirit-wrought internal transformation 
that is truly life. Look at it in verse 28 and 29 with me. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. Now stop for a moment and just realize that in Paul's day, that phrase, circumcision is not outward and it is not physical, that was a revolutionary, life-changing, theological revolution. It's not outward. It's not physical. And yet it is. But that's not what its meaning was. There was no life in circumcision. It pointed to something far deeper and far greater. The life that was to be within. This transformation... For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but the Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, not by the Spirit, not by obedience to the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. The true transformation is from the inward outward, and not the outward forms inward. A true Jew is one not who was circumcised outwardly, but one who is circumcised inwardly in the heart. Look in verse 29. But a Jew is one inwardly. This word here is the Greek word crypto, from which we take our English words like cryptographer, a person who deals in language that is concealed or a crypt in which someone is buried, buried in secret. Paul is saying a true Jew is one who has been changed in secret. The true Christian is one who has been changed in secret, within, inwardly, in the heart. The true son or daughter of God is one whose heart has been cut. It has been opened. It has been laid bare before God. It has been renewed by the Spirit of God. <clears throat> now the Jews in Paul's day had been taught by their scholars and their rabbis that if circumcised, they were part of the Old Testament covenant community. And then as part of that covenant community, they were therefore safe from the judgment of God. They had a superstitious confidence in the outward sign. But that outward sign pointed to an inward reality that many of the Jews did not have. And so there are many baptized members of our churches, even those outside of our churches who believe at rock bottom that their performance makes them immune to the judgment of God. Dear ones, Romans 2 says it is not so. Our churches have young and old alike that believe that God grades us on a curve, i.e. that God sees that we are just a little bit better than the next person. And Romans 2 tells us it is not true. Church membership 
a family legacy of church going, church service, being a pastor, trying hard, having been baptized, tithing to the church, volunteering in ministry, attending youth groups, singing in the choir, teaching kids Sunday school. Not one of these, nor all of those together, make a man or a woman pleasing to God. Not one. And Romans 2 tells us so. The genuine believer, Paul is telling us, which the rest of the book of Romans unfolds in all of its beauty, is that we are redeemed by the labors and the sacrifices of Jesus Christ alone. Transmitted to a heart that is changed by the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. That is life. Listen to how the Holy Spirit puts it through Paul in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I live now in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who what? Loved me and gave himself. And right thereafter, Paul says, I will not make void the grace of God. Paul says, I make void the work of Jesus Christ when I attempt to add anything at all to what he has done. Paul again in Titus 3, he says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by, listen, the washing and regeneration of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us by his mercy in Jesus Christ. statements of what it means to be a believer. One Bible scholar of the last century wrote these verses. To a Jew, a passage like this must have come as a shattering experience. He's right, of course, but it is not only for Jews that a passage like this should be shattering. It should be shattering to us all, particularly if we find ourselves thinking that in our case, we are somehow different because of our religious leanings. If you have been trusting in your baptism, if you have been trusting in your communicants class, if you have been trusting in your church membership or your knowledge of the Bible and doctrine or your generous stewardship, if you've been trusting in your Christian upbringing, if you've been trusting in anything other than Jesus Christ and his death upon the cross in your place, throw whatever it is completely out of your mind, abandon it, step on it, grind it down, dust off the place where it lay, and turn to Jesus alone. Now, dear ones, I hope you understand that this is not just for conversion. It is surely for that. But that's the day-to-day -day life of every Christian, that we wake up every day and we step on and we trample down and we grind to dust and we blow it away. Anything 
that has to do with confidence before God. Accept Jesus and what he has done. Dear ones, our arrogance must die. Our self-confidence spiritually must be shattered. And we must come to the foot of the cross where every single human being is exactly the same in need of the one thing that can change them from death to life. Ezekiel 36, the prophet says on behalf of God, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. From all of your uncleanness, from all of your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. And I will put this within you. And I will remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And be careful to obey my rules. Aren't those the most beautiful words that can be put into the mouth of Jesus Christ? That he will give you a new heart. That he will wash you and that he will cleanse you. And he will put his spirit within you. So then when you're, whether you're a visitor of Pear Orchard, a member for two months or 30 years. Where's your confidence lodged? This morning. I want to leave us to linger on this image of, of a pastor of a generation ago who used this with his people. It's an image of Jesus Christ reflecting on his cross and the Roman soldier who thrust a spear into his side. And so this pastor dares to put words into the mouth of Jesus. If you meet that poor wretch that thrust the spear into my side, tell him there is another way, a better way of coming at my heart. If he will repent and look upon whom he has pierced and will mourn, I will cherish him in that very bosom that he wounded. And he shall find the blood he shed an ample atonement for the sin of shedding it. But tell him from me that he will put me to more pain and displeasure by refusing this offer of my blood than when he drew it forth. How beautiful. By the way, that quote is printed in your bulletin. I encourage you to take that with you and meditate on it. You and I, by our wretched rebellion, we have helped to draw forth the blood of the Son of God. But here is the glory that you who contributed to the very need for Christ to be upon that cross, it is that very blood that Jesus offers to atone for the sin of drawing it forth. And so Jesus invites you this morning to come. 
Truth be told, when we put all of the scripture together, Jesus commands you to come. So come now. Let's pray. Father, we would ask that this very spirit whom you prophesied about through Ezekiel would come and wash and cleanse and renew the inner man of every child and every adult who is present this very day. Sovereign God of grace and of mercy through your son Jesus, do not stop until you have won the reward of every heart. We pray it for the honor of Christ.